Hello and welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study. We are in 2 Kings, uh, the 18th chapter, as we go through our verse-by-verse -verse study of Kings, First and 2 Kings, Old Testament here. Uh, we are now to the next king, who is King Hezekiah. Now, up to this point, what we just finished reading is why Israel uh, finally had been uh, destroyed and taken off into captivity because of their consistent sins going on and on. Remember, there are two kingdoms. Kingdom of Israel to the north, Kingdom of Judah to the south. Kingdom of Israel now has been taken into captivity because of their sin. So we still got Judah. Judah's still there. So now we're to King Hezekiah. So in the third year of uh, Hosea, uh, son of Elan, king of Israel, then Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. Now, this guy is a bright spot. There's a couple of bright spots throughout the history uh, since King David here, but they're very, very rare. Most of these kings were incomprehensibly wicked. Uh, Israel was so wicked, God couldn't take it anymore. It's eventually going to happen to Judah as well. Because they too would continue in these sins and, and just keep disobeying God. But a couple of bright spots. This is one of them. He did, in verse 3 he says, He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places. These guys would go out and do idol worship on these high places. He smashed the sacred stones, cut down the Asherah poles. All these things were part of idol worship, satanic worship. That was everywhere in the land. Even on occasion where there would be nice kings that would come along and kind of serve the Lord, they wouldn't get rid of everything. Well, this guy came along, he started getting rid of everything. And he broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made. Uh, we talked about that before. You know, that time when Moses, everybody was getting bit by serpents and dying and Moses made a brass serpent. God said, put a serpent up on a stick and then when they look up, if they've been bit, they'll be healed. Great analogy, what it means to look up at Jesus to be healed of our sin. In fact, even Jesus made the analogy himself. We won't go into all that again because uh, we talked about it uh, quite a bit already. But uh, these, guys, these guys had started worshiping the very snake instead of worshiping God. We also talked about that. Okay? So uh, then in verse 5, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him, assuming not counting King David. So this guy is the best king since David. This guy... He is really getting it right. It's the, a final bright spot in the midst of all this insanity. He held fast to the Lord, did not cease to follow him. He kept the commands of the Lord, of the Lord had given to Moses. And the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. He rebelled against uh, uh, the king of Assyria and did not serve him. From watchtower to fortified city, he defeated the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory. All right, now verse 9. There's a little paragraph here. And king... Hezekiah's fourth year, uh, which was now the seventh year of Hosea, the king of uh, Israel, Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, marched against Samaria, and Samaria, which was Israel, northern Israel, and laid siege to it. In other words, what they're doing is telling us what they already told us, that uh, the Assyrians came in and took Israel uh, captivity. And then they're telling us again, this uh, we see this a lot in the Old Testament. They would say something and they'd say it again. It's kind of like it's, uh, you get the very much the sense that they had taken 
several different versions of historical texts and put them together when they compiled these, these writings. So anyway, so it's telling us that uh, it was in the seventh year of the uh, king of Israel, which was now the fourth year of, of, of Hezekiah, that the Assyrians came and laid siege to it. Now at the end of three years, the Assyrians took it. So Samaria was captured in Hezekiah's sixth year, which was the ninth year of Hosea, king of Israel. Now, I don't know if you ran the math on that yet, but it's wrong. So I don't know why it's wrong. I don't know what, what the deal is here because if Hezekiah is in his fourth year and the other guy's in his seventh year and three years later, four, five, six, now it's the seventh year of, uh, of uh, Hezekiah, but it says here, not the seventh year, it says the sixth year. And instead of the tenth year of Hosea, it says the ninth year. So, um, again, I don't know why it's off by a year. I don't really care. I don't think it really matters. Was it, uh, you know, uh, it says it was three years before they took uh, total control of it. Maybe that's what it meant. And, and, even though they, you know, it, these things didn't happen instantaneously. We're not talking 21st century here. This is a long time ago. So how long all this stuff took, I don't know. I just pointed out to you because if you do the math, it doesn't add up. And, and to point out to you that oftentimes when you hear stuff like the Bible's full of contradictions, this is the kind of stuff they're talking about. We're talking piddly caca here. That means nothing to anything. And they'll put out, well, see, it says, you know, three years. But if you do the math, it's only so it's full of contradictions. Well, if, if this is the max of your contradictions, it means nothing. And again, who knows exactly what they were talking about. It would be, for example, when uh, it, we say that Jesus was in the grave for three days uh, and then he rose again from the dead. Right? We're all familiar with that. On the third day he rose again. Well, yeah, but that's not exactly the way it was. He wasn't in the grave for three days. In fact, he was probably in the grave for maybe a day and a half. Uh, it was on the third day. In other words, the way that they would talk about it in biblical times, he died Friday evening just before the Sabbath, which is Saturday. So he died on the first day, which is Friday, even though it might have been a couple of hours or hours or before the Sabbath started. Uh, then he was in the grave Saturday, the second day, and on the third day, he rose from the dead. Again, these are people who say, Bible's full of contradictions. It says it was three days. It was really only, you know, a little over 24 hours, you know. Well, it's not contradictions. It's just different ways of saying things. So, dies on Friday, in the grave on Saturday, rose on Thursday. He rose on the third day. He wasn't really in. See, they weren't talking scientifically like we would say, you know, that uh, it would be, uh, 24 hours and 48 hours and whatever, you know, as, as in terms that we would think for three days. That's not how they would think. So anyway, that's just for the what is worth department. The math is off a year here. I don't know why exactly what they're talking about. It doesn't matter. It doesn't mean anything. But this is kind of the piddly stuff. Uh, again, it says in verse 10, at the end of three years, they, they took it, but it was captured in the sixth year, which would have been a year earlier, so maybe it took an extra year. I don't know. It's not a big deal. Anyway, there you have it. I made a big deal out of something that's not a big deal. So the king of Assyria deported Israel to Assyria and settled them in all these towns over there. This happened because they had not obeyed the Lord their God, but had violated his commandment, a covenant 
all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. They neither listened to the commands nor carried them out. So that whole chap, that whole paragraph is just to tell us what they just told us, you know, two other paragraphs ago in much greater detail. So, now, then we have this next story uh, about King Hezekiah. And, and this one is just one of these things that you go, what? It doesn't quite make sense. But there's a lot of that in the Old Testament. A lot of stuff is just, just hard to really understand. So it says, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, so now several, many years later, Sennacherib, king of Assyria. So we've got a different king. The first time when they came and uh, laid siege against Samaria, uh, it was Shalmaneser. Now it's Sennacherib is the king of Assyria. And he attacks all the fortified city of Judah and captured them. Verse 14. So Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent this message to the king of Assyria at Lasish. Uh, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. I will pay whatever you demand of me. And the king of Assyria exacted uh, from Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. Um, so Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the temple of, of the Lord and in the treasuries of the royal palace. At this time, uh, Hezekiah, king of Judah, stripped off the gold which he had covered the doors and doorposts of the temple of the Lord and gave it to the king of Assyria. The reason this is odd here is it, I, I don't get it. What's going on here? He's paying the guy off. Um, uh, one Bible scholar that I was, was looking at saying that this, this was a, a failure of faith on Hezekiah's part. I, I don't know that it was. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what happened here. You know, where was God? Because uh, we see as this goes on that God shows up. Why didn't he turn to the Lord then? It says that he, uh, before this, he kept all the commands of the Lord. And whatever he did uh, was successful. God was with him, Hezekiah. But yet, there is this little block of time where you go, kind of, where, where, where is God? And uh, I just point that out because I don't know about you, but if, if you've been serving the Lord very long, if you've been a Christian for very long, you will find parts of your own history of faith where there are like chunks of where was God, okay? Um, I, I don't know if you've experienced that. Certainly I've experienced that. There's times where God's showing up and this is happening and then there's times where it's like, it's kind of like you're on your own for a little while. Uh, and uh, uh, oftentimes these could be tests uh, of God in our life. Sometimes it's just maybe the Lord saying, hey, you're going to serve me because you feel me every five seconds or you're going to keep serving me even when you don't feel me around. Um, there, there can be all kinds of reasons for it. I believe in the greater scheme of things, it's all part of God's plan. But uh, don't be discouraged when you hit times in your life that don't always make sense. And again, I'm, I'm sure if I had the time to sit and talk with all of you or you know, maybe uh, when your campus pastors discuss this, uh, you know, afterwards, some of you could share your own stories or something. But it's, it's fairly common for people to share, you know, this happened to me. I went through this. Uh, we ha I had this real weird accident. I, you know, it's just, which it just seems like it just doesn't fit in with the rest of the picture of your story, walking with God. And it seems like, God was a million miles away, like he went to Vegas that weekend or something. But trust me, God never leaves you. He never forsakes you. Why certain things happen at certain times in your life, there can be a multiple different reasons for it. But let me just encourage you, don't lose heart. 
don't give up. Don't lose faith. Particularly when you hit spots in your life where it seems like you were kind of off on your own. And you can't, again, you just can't help but look back and say, God, where were you? You know, I mean, it was, again, I can't explain it all. I, I do know this. There's a God in heaven who loves me, cares about me, shows up all the time in my life. And why I've got some spots where it seems like I didn't know what was going on, you know, who knows? I don't have explanations for all that. Oftentimes, I just think it's an opportunity to grow in your faith, even when you're not getting all the answers you want, even though you don't feel God as close as you want, but you keep doing the right things. I hope this makes sense, you know. It's easy, let's face it, it's easy to serve God when every time you pray, pray you get an immediate answer, or the whole time you're going through troubles, you feel God very close to you. That's easy. I think some of the real challenging times in faith is when you have to keep doing the right things or the best you can, even when it seems like you can't sense God very closely. Um, I just recently was talking to a friend who uh, went through, you know, someone that they knew went through a very difficult time, and it, and it seemed very, very odd what had happened to this person. We won't get into all the details here. In fact, I won't give you any details, but uh, this person, some horrible thing had happened to him. And the other person who I was talking to was all upset because this horrible thing had happened to this person. And they were, you know, talking like, how can I, how can I trust God? How can I, how can I believe in God when this horrible thing happens to this other person? And, and I just challenged them. I said, look, you don't know what happened. You don't even know all the details of what happened. You just know the end result. You don't know how it got there. You know if it was God. You know if it was them. You don't know. There's a million things. So I, I said this to, to them. I said, look, don't lose your faith. Don't give up your faith on what you don't know. You know, I mean, if it's something you know, that's a little bit different. For example, if you know the Bible says Jesus is the Son of God, and you go, really? I can't accept that. I don't think Jesus was, well, okay. Well, then, then it's clear, you know, or, or something in the Bible says, you know, you should do or shouldn't do, and you say, well, I don't, want, I don't want to agree with that, and you lose your faith because of something's very clear to you, and okay, that I can understand. It's still silly, but it's still, I understand. But the goofiest thing, is when people lose their faith and they give up on their faith based on something they don't know. Good grief. Come on, people. Life is hard enough. But don't lose your faith on what you don't know. When you don't know, you just keep going. When you hit the little splotches in the road where it's like, this makes no sense. You just keep moving. All right? Why did that happen? I don't know. But I have a funny feeling that one of the first words out of our mouths when everybody gets to heaven is going to be, oh, that's why. Sure, it'll make sense then. It doesn't make sense now. When you hit those splotches where it's like a God-free zone, something doesn't make sense, whatever. Good grief. Don't lose your faith on what you don't know. Hang on to what you do know. Don't doubt in the dark what God has shown you clearly in the light, for heaven's sake. So don't be one of these people that something happens, to, especially third party. I think that's very bizarre. If it happens to you and you're in a spot like this and you're having a hard time, at least that I get. I don't understand people who they start losing their faith because of something that happened to somebody else that they don't know all the facts on. That's crazy. Okay? Don't lose your faith based on something you don't know. Especially
especially if it doesn't have anything to do with you. Something horrible happens to somebody else, you don't know why. You don't know why. Don't lose your faith because of that. How do you know what happened? You don't know what. You weren't there. Where were they at with God? What was going on in their lives? Again, you don't know. A little splash in the road, you just keep moving. All right. So now, after being paid off, Sennacherib still comes at Hezekiah. And he starts to threaten uh, the city of Jerusalem. So we pick it up in verse 17. Uh, the king of Assyria sent his supreme commander, the supreme commander of the general, his chief officer, and his field commander with a large army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. So he sends this big group of guys. And they came up to Jerusalem and stopped at the aqueduct, aqueduct, of, the, uh, aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field, uh, wherever. And they called for the king. So they come to this big army and they call for the king. Hey, yo, King Hezekiah. Well, the king doesn't come. There are certain protocols in these situations. They send their emissary and then you send emissaries, although they're being disrespectful because they're threatening to destroy the king. So instead of the king coming up, uh, they call for the king, but Elikam, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, went out to them. In other words... Um, not only did the king not go out, but the palace administrator didn't go out. He sent his son, and the official recorder didn't go out. They sent his son, uh, Shebna, the secretary. That person went. I don't know if he didn't have a son, but anyway. So, uh, so they sent these three guys. So then the field commander says to them, tell Hezekiah this. This is what the great king, the king of Assyria says. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? In other words, they were being bold. They were guarding their... Uh, the city, they're, they're standing there, they're trusting in God. And he says, what are you basing your confidence? You say you have strategy and military strength, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Look now, are you, de you are depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff that, which pierces a man's hand and wounds him as if he leans on it? Uh, such is Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So I mean, he basically just starts insulting these guys. And uh, says, so, you know, Look, you guys are doomed. We're coming in. We're taking over. We're kicking butt. There's no sense in fighting. All part of psychological warfare. Obviously, if you can frighten your opponent into surrendering, less casualties you're going to take because obviously in any military conflict, even though you might eventually prevail, still at what cost? It's going to cost you. So you try to mess with the other guy's head, try to get him to surrender. You know, Verse 23 says, come now, let us make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. And I'll, I'll give you 2,000 horses if you can even find riders for them. And how, how can you repulse even one officer of the least of my master's officials, even though you are depending on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? You can't even beat one of our weakest guys. I mean, again, messing with their heads. Uh, furthermore, I've come to attack and destroy this place without... Oh, then he says, furthermore, have I come to attack and destroy this place without word from the Lord? In other words... Um, do you think I'd even come here if God didn't tell me to come? So now he's telling me, he knows they're religious people, they believe in the Lord. He says, why would he even come if the Lord didn't tell us to come? God told us to come to kill you. Again, totally messing with their heads. He goes out, he says, the Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. All not true, but it's all ways of getting into their heads. Well, now the three guys realize what he's doing. So Elikam and Shebna and Joah, 
said this to the field commander, please speak to your servants in Aramaic since we understand it. Let's speak Aramaic. We understand Aramaic. Just speak that because that's your language. Don't speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people on the wall. In other words, let's just keep this between us. Don't speak in our language. Everybody up there will hear you. Well, of course, this guy wanted everyone to hear him because he wanted to freak him out. So, so, but the commander replied, was it only to your master and to you that my master sent me to say these things and not to the men sitting on the wall who, like you, will have to eat their own filth and drink their own urine? Ugh. I mean, this guy, he's basically saying, your life is going to be miserable. If we come, you make us battle, you are going to be eating caca. Then the commander stood and called out in Hebrew, hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. He does the exact opposite of what these guys ask. So this emissary, he's really got an attitude. So he's asking them, please don't say it to these guys. No, he gets up and he yells at all of them. This is what the king says. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you from my hand. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord when he says, the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and come out to me. Then every one of you will eat from his own vine and fig tree and drink water from his own cistern until I come and take you to a land like your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olives, trees, and honey. Choose life, not death. Why are you going to die? But he is warning them. You will come. You'll have a nice place. We're going to take you into captivity. We're going to take you someplace else, which is what they had already done to Israel. Okay. And he says, do not listen to Hezekiah, for he's misleading you when he says, the Lord will deliver us. Has the God of any nation ever delivered his hand from the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and of Arphad? Where are the gods of, and he starts listing all these different gods and stuff. Because he's trying to, again, take, fill them with fear. You know, not only do, is this a great tactic militarily, it's a great tactic spiritually. Satan does the same thing to you. He wants to fill your heart with fear. He wants to put a picture in your head of you at the worst possible scenario. This is going to happen. You're going to lose your job. Your kids are going to be in the street. Your wife will be crying in the gutters. It's going to be horrible. Life's going to... And just try to fill you with fear. Why? Because if he can get you to fill with fear, it cancels faith. You can't really trust God for miracles in your life. This has been an effective strategy since the beginning of time, both militarily and spiritually. Don't let your heart be troubled, Jesus said. Don't, don't, you know, be careful. Don't let fear come in to you. Don't sit and think over and over again about how horrible it's going to be and, oh, it's going to be worse than that and, oh, and then this is going to happen. And we do that. We spiral out of control. We rehearse over and over. We play a movie in our minds over and over again about the worst case scenario and how terrible it's going to be and, oh, 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 oh. and it fills us with fear. You think it doesn't matter. It's no big deal. You're just thinking. But trust me, it's filling your heart with fear and it'll keep you from being in a place of faith. You cannot have both light and darkness in the same space. Okay? And when you have fear, it's going to rob you of faith. And without faith, the Bible says, it's impossible to please God. You get God's attention through faith. Instead, when things come at you, don't be rehearsing over and over again in your mind what a terrible picture and how awful it's going to be. You need to stop. 
You need to start playing a new movie. It's going to be okay. God's going to take care of us. I'm trusting in his word, looking for an opportunity for a miracle. Let faith be strong in you and not fear. Okay? So anyway, he uh, yells out at them, How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? But the people remained silent and said nothing in reply. He's, remember, he's yelling at all the people up on the, on the wall. Because the king had told them, don't answer him. Whatever you do, just keep your mouth shut. So they didn't say anything. And then Elikam and Shebna and Joash uh, went to Hezekiah after hearing everything in detail and with their clothes torn, which is a, a way of uh, uh, hu humiliating themselves, humbling themselves before God in mourning. And they told him, what the field commander had said. Well, then we got verse 1 of chapter 19. When King Hezekiah heard the full report, he come, he heard this, then he tore his clothes. Very dramatic, Middle Eastern uh, culture. Uh, they, they tear clo their clothes. They throw dust on their heads. They wear sackcloth and ashes. To this day, if you are to watch on television any morning or something, of people in the Middle East, you'll see them doing something, throwing dust up and... I mean, it's, it's just part of their culture, very dramatic in the sense. So Hezekiah tears his clothes. Uh, he puts on sackcloth, which is, again, a, a greater sign of uh, humbling oneself before God, very uncomfortable clothing. Uh, and he went into the temple of the Lord. And he sent uh, Elikam, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and the leading priests, all wearing sackcloth. They're all dressed like this now. They're all humbling themselves before God. And they went to the prophet Isaiah. Now we hit Isaiah the prophet. Now, uh, you can certainly read the book of Isaiah. It's, it's, a, it's a pretty big book. There are, uh, in the Old Testament, um, what they call major prophets and minor prophets. Ezekiel was a major prophet. Jeremiah was a major prophet. Isaiah was a major prophet. Okay, then you got the minor prophets, Amos and Micah and all these little other guys, Zephaniah and these small. But uh, now we've, we've run into Isaiah, who is this major prophet, a major player in the Old Testament. And unlike uh, Elisha or Elijah, uh, which, which has no record of anything that they wrote, when you read about Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and, and these guys, they wrote in great detail their thoughts and the word of God speaking through them to these people that we've been talking about. So when you read, it's highly unlikely that I'll do a verse by verse of these guys. This, this is pretty brutal stuff. Um, Isaiah has some great stuff. We might sometime jump through uh, bits and pieces of Isaiah. There's great prophecies, specific prophecies about Jesus coming, the Messiah, and, and uh, some great scriptures. Uh, you know, that whole scripture, for unto us a child is born, a son is given, uh, and uh, his name shall be called Emmanuel. All, this, all these are prophecies of Isaiah. Uh, he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. All these wonderful prophecies about Jesus was all coming out of the, word, the mouth of Isaiah, and he wrote it all down. So again, Isaiah has uh, great detail of the words of God that came through him as do these other guys too. Um, uh, a little, little tricky to read. A lot of it's written kind of poetically. Uh, so again, I'm, I'm not very inclined to want to go through all that with you, but uh, you can certainly look at it. So anyway, this is where Isaiah 
comes up. What is helpful, though, is as after going through this, is you get a picture of the world these guys are talking into. When Ezekiel spoke, when, uh, when Isaiah spoke, when all these different prophets spoke. This is the world they're speaking into. Um, a time of wicked kings, most of them disobeying God, not listening. That's why the prophets were crying out, you need to repent, you need to turn back to God. I'm going to send my punishment. They're the ones who prophesied that they would be carried into captivity. Uh, they wouldn't listen. Then they eventually all, now Israel has been, now eventually Judah will be as well, all taken into Babylonian captivity for I think 70 years or whatever. All the stuff had been warned. These prophets warned them. They told them. They pleaded with them. Some of them in very dramatic fashion uh, to obey God and do the right thing. And by, by and large, they just totally ignored them. So anyway, this is where we run into Isaiah. And they told him, this is what Hezekiah says. This day is a day of distress and rebuke and disgrace as when children come to the point of birth and there's no strength to deliver them. It may be that the Lord your God will hear all the words of the field commander whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to ridicule the living God and that he will rebuke him for the words the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, pray for the remnant that still survives. And when King Hezekiah's officials came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, tell your master, Hezekiah, this is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid of what you have heard. Man, how often... It's amazing. If we were to do a study, how many times the first thing God says to them is don't be afraid. For the very reason I just spoke to you about, fear will cancel out your faith. The, first, the doctor tells you you've got cancer. The banker says you're going to lose everything. They're going to repossess your home. You're going to lose your job. All these horrible things that you might hear and you come. The first thing when you minister to somebody in a situation like that, you've got to tell them, okay, before I can really pray effectively before, for you, before we can really help you through this, don't be afraid. I know it seems impossible to them because their, their fears are screaming at them. I mean, these guys are, you know, this isn't just a bad hair day here. This, this king had wreaked havoc all over uh, and had totally wiped out Israel and now it's coming at Judah. I mean, this is life and death stuff. This is major stuff. When these guys were coming to God with some of the stuff, this, was, this wasn't, gee, I've got a headache, Lord. Can you help me out and get some sleep tonight? This is major stuff. You talk about fear. You think about fear about losing your job. How about your wife and your children and everybody losing their heads? I mean, this is a major, major thing. And the first thing God has to speak to them, even in the most dire of circumstances and the greatest of threats, is do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. You have to calm fear people this is so critical because if you don't calm the fear first you can't get to a place of faith then everything else you're doing you're kind of spinning your wheels it's like you know you know back in the day when they had those transmissions and stuff they were all so goofy and the roads weren't very good some of you guys my age and older have lots of stories of times you got stuck out in the middle of nowhere and you'd get in the mud and your wheels would spin and you'd someone would stick their foot on the accelerator and it just makes it worse and worse. That's what happens when you react in fear. In fear, is like you're in the mud and you just step as fast as you can, as hard as you can on the, on the, on the uh, accelerator and it'll just dig you into a deeper hole. You're not going to get anywhere. You've got to start first just calming the fear. Calm the fear. Uh, sometimes... This will sound very odd to you, but sometimes people uh, 
they're very quick to pray about a disaster in their life. But uh, I often try to slow them down a little bit. I think sometimes people even pray too fast. I, I know it sounds weird. I'm just saying. Because all they're spewing is fear. You know, God, help me. God, help me. I don't know what I'm going to do. It's going to be horrible. <laughs> okay. That is not effective prayer. There's effective prayer, and then there's spinning your wheels. The prayer that goes, <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know is not effective prayer. That's spinning the wheels. Slow down a little bit. Calm the fear. Hush. You've got to be quiet. You've got to start with fear not. Do not be afraid. And that it might even take a few days before you can even effectively pray. It's happened in my life. I even cut myself slack. I figure I got, I give myself 24 to 48 hours of freak out time, you know, where I know I'm just spinning my wheel. I just try to calm down and hardly even try to pray because it's not effective. I focus on calming the fear. Calm down. Calm down. And once I calm down, now I can pray. Now I can stand in faith. Now we can believe God. And it's faith that gets God's attention and brings miracles into your life. I hope you learned something from this. Don't let fear spiral you out. Some people, they f- cry and cry and pray and pray and pray and pray and pray. And they're just crying out. Together. But it's almost 99% fear-driven. It, it's just not effective. You know, I mean, I, we'll, we'll hold your hands while you do that. We'll try and put our arms around you. We'll cry with you for a while if that's what's necessary. But trust me, that's not effective praying. That's just trying to get you through the initial panic stage. And we all have it. I get it. But something you've got to teach yourself is you've got to calm down. The fear has to be silenced if you're going to get to a place where you can start really praying, really having faith, and really see God show up and do something in your life. Starts as soon as you calm down. All right, and we'll, it will pick up uh, at this point uh, next week and continue the study and, and see what happens as a result of all this. Uh, at this time, campus pastors are going to come and uh, open it up and ask you some questions, and, and let's get some conversation going about some of these uh, truths that we talked about tonight, and we'll see you all next Wednesday. Bye-bye.